Hi, everyone, and welcome to Mirror Media Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Mukunda Raghavan. And today we're joined by uh, another amazing scholar that we've done quite a bit of great scholars within uh, Indology and South Asian uh, religions and Hinduism on the whole. And today we're joined by Dr. Makamis Taylor. Um, he's based out of University of Australia, I believe, or maybe the it's another another university name. I forget. I think it's Canberry or, or Canberria, um, right? It's the Australian National University, which is lo located in Canberra, our national yeah. capital. There we go. So, you know, it shows how little I know about many things. Um, but no, uh, uh, Dr. Taylor is an amazing scholar. You know, he has decades of deep, deep textual knowledge. And one of the most fascinating things he's done in recent time that I think uh, more people need to discuss is the first, I, I would say, translation of the Vishnu Purana in almost 200 years. If, is that correct? Or is, is, uh, That's yeah. correct. Yeah, That's absolutely correct, Mukunda. And, and the last one to do it was H.H. Wilson. And I have his book back here, uh, which is much more... Uh, it's it's a much older English, to so to speak. <laughs> English, uh, like any language, evolves, Mukunda. And yeah. uh, actually, I have great respect for H. H. Wilson's translation, which I believe he actually undertook with a team of unacknowledged pundits. Right. Uh, so it, it, it's it's largely his own work. It's a very good translation. But it, as it, you say, the the language is very dated. But uh, it, now, two hundred no, years old. And we'll talk about this you know, some more in your work, but like the one thing that's fascinating about yours is I think you pull from hundreds of translations or hundreds of manuscripts where I think Wilson had maybe, I think eight, eight or nine that he pulls from, he talks about that I remember in his, in his, his introduction, he, he references. Is that, is that, is that correct? Uh, that's correct. So he worked from a number of uh, a number of different manuscripts. Mine is actually the translation of a recently published critical edition from uh, from Baroda uh, from uh -huh. uh, MS University in uh, Pune. And so what they did is they got the widest possible range of manuscripts, spread them out on a table, and over a, a period of of many years, collated what they believe is uh, the best version of the text uh, based on those multiple manuscripts. Now, in, in fact, there are still errors in their critical edition, which is always a bit disappointing. There's some sure. rather poor uh, typographical mistakes, printing mistakes. Sure. But it's a good, sure. it's a good manuscript. And, and slightly ironically, there's not that much variation uh, among the manuscripts of the Vishnu Purana. There's some, some texts like Mahabharatam, Ramayanam, there's great variation mm -hmm. among the extant, extant uh, manuscripts. This is not the case with the Vishnu Purana, where there's, there's maybe it's just the odd word here or there, right. uh, uh, different, but basically uh, the text has been very consistent over time. Right, so before we get into the text, um... How did you, what's your background? How did you get into wanting to study uh, Sanskrit and Indian traditions? I mean, it's, I imagine, you know, like 30, 40 years ago, it was a much more difficult space to have any sense of what's going on here. Um, so how did uh, you get access to this? Ah, uh, well, it's a very long story, <laughs> Mukunda, but uh, to keep it, to keep it short, years ago, uh, I watched Peter Brooks' six-hour video version of Mahabharatam. Yeah. And it finished at half past one in the morning. So it ran all night, finished at half past one in the morning. And I was absolutely blown away. I had never seen anything like it. And it was a, it was a full moon night. And I went out, I stood on the back step and I took a vow under the full moon that I would spend the next 10 years learning Sanskrit so that I could read Mahabharatam in the original. And the next morning I went out and I bought a copy of a book called 
teach yourself Sanskrit, which is a terrible place. That was my first mistake. It's a, it's a terrible place to start. Nobody ever got past chapter five. So I got to chapter five. I hit the normal brick wall that everyone hits. Yeah. Uh, and I found uh, lovely tutors and mentors uh, in Canberra, the city where I live, uh, who took me on privately and encouraged me. And so I read Sanskrit by myself for three or four years, uh, and I went back to university now in, uh, at that stage in my late 40s. Wow. And I started, I started a PhD in Sanskrit, which I finished just before I turned 50. Uh, I studied Sanskrit. I went on to study in Germany. I've studied in India. And uh, still my first love is Mahabharatam. Yeah. And having studied it for many years, I, I read the whole of Ramayanam as a warm-up exercise, and I started reading Mahabharatam itself about 10 years ago. Uh, I read one page uh, every day with a Nilakanta commentary. Right. And uh, I'm about three-quarters of the way through, so it's going to take me another four, three or four years to finish it. But, Mukunda, the problem is... I can't remember what I have read. So I think when I finish this reading, I'll have to go back to the beginning and start again. But uh, so what, what has happened with the passage of time is that the, the characters of Mahabharatam have become like family members yeah. for me. The, the Pandavas uh, have, have become like like brothers to me is the way I feel that sort of so intimate did you, connection. When, when you made that vow underneath the moon, did flowers fall from the sky? And did uh, uh, <laughs> did did you hear voices? Figuratively, saying, yes. <laughs> figuratively, yes. Uh, disembodied voices sounded from the heavens. Sadhu, sadhu. sadhu. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's uh, so. That's 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 amazing that you picked up. Sanskrit in your 40s so what were you doing before this period of time uh, I I have a I have a background in uh, in Asian studies Mukunda so my first my first degree and my first love was actually uh, classical Chinese oh wow so I'd studied uh, I'd studied Chinese in the uh, 1970s uh, 1980s uh, that led to an interest in uh, Tibetan studies so I, I worked and taught in Tibetan studies uh for the late 80s uh, 1990s and uh tibetan studies leads very naturally also to uh an interest in sanskrit of course and as somebody pointed out my intellectual interests have moved south at the rate of about 200 kilometers a year which is <laughs> the last uh, 30 or 40 years which is great because because you, you're you're following the path of buddhism but backwards <laughs> uh, but backwards that's exactly right but there's actually uh there, there are quite a number of scholars have taken a similar path so uh so uh the great professor de jong who is the doyen of sanskrit studies in australia for many many years uh took a similar path so his first his first degree was in Chinese studies, and then uh, he he worked on Tibetan texts, and he finally came to Sanskrit texts. So this is actually where my home is, Mukunda. It took me a long time to get here, but well, uh, Sanskrit is very much my intellectual home. Well, it's 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 like it's like the the Lord of the Rings where they feel near your world, right? Which is a uh, it's all about the journey. <laughs> uh, it was certainly true. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, so you got into the world of Sanskrit studies. And you you fell in love with Mahabharata. Mahabharata is my first love, also. It's 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 a it's a text that really helped me get better at my Sanskrita because it just because it has so many different you know types of 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 verses. Not you know some are you know Anushtuba, some are Tushuba, and then you have the various layers in the text of of some you know archaic, almost Vedic in some sense, and then some mm. much more modern prose. Mm. I mean, not modern, but like you know modern and ancient world prose so it, it you have to navigate this very fascinating text and the different like methods they mm. engage in literature which helped me a mm. lot um so mm. that i i think it's interesting just because mahabharata obviously is written by vyasa the son of parashara who wrote the you know vishnu purana so what drew you to the vishnu purana was it through the harivamsha or did you uh, come through another path as a matter of fact, no, it, it didn't. Uh, it didn't come through that path. So, Mukunda, I'd finished a project 
on oral performance of the Bhagavata Purana uh, in about 2016. So mm -hmm. uh, that was that was a really lovely project. My colleagues, my Western colleagues, are very focused on the textual traditions, and nobody had really thought of asking how these texts are performed orally mm -hmm. in India today. And so I'd spent five years working on, on uh, uh, Saptaha, so Srimad Bhagavata Saptaha, these seven-day performances, oral performances of the Bhagavata Purana. And I'd recently, I, I just finished a book published with, uh, with Oxford mm -hmm. called Seven Days of Nectar, and I didn't have a project, but I had a head full of Vaishnava <laughs> narratives. And uh, completely by chance, uh, uh, a colleague at, uh, at Baroda in Pune asked me, uh, they were actually looking for someone to translate their critical edition of the Vayu Purana. And I had a look at it, and it's very, very long. And I said, oh, I don't, this is... I, well, it's a great project, but it's too big for me. They said, right. well, what about the Vishnu Purana, which is a mere 5,000 verses? I thought, well, that's more like me. <laughs> so they had actually asked me, they had invited me to translate that, and it was perfect timing for me because uh, it's, uh, uh, I, as I said, I just finished working on Bhagavata Purana. Yeah. If anything, the Vishnu Purana is like the, the, the older brother of yeah. the Bhagavata Purana, but... It's in nice, easy Sanskrit that even I can understand. I do find the Bhagavata Purana quite difficult, but uh, uh, Vishnu Purana is in lovely, easy Sanskrit. It's all in. It's nearly all in shloka meter. Yeah. Uh, it's it's it has good commentaries. Uh, so I felt uh, it was a good project. So and about uh, about halfway through, mm -hmm. I suddenly realised that. I love this text. I just sort of taken it on as a job, but after a while, I realized I actually love it. It's a beautiful text, right. and I'm, I feel really proud and happy that maybe I can bring it back into uh, popular uh, consciousness. Right. People have rather forgotten about the Vishnu Purana. It has been very much overshadowed by uh, it, within the faith community, overshadowed by the Bhagavata Purana, yeah, uh, particularly. The Gaudiya Vaishnava yes. tradition regards the, the uh, uh, Bhagavata Purana as very highly. And the Vishnu Purana has really slipped away. But it's a great text. It's, it's easy to read in Sanskrit. It's got all of the great stories, narratives of the Hindu tradition. It's really a, 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 it's like an, a, an introduction to Hindu traditions because it's got the creation of the world. It's got the origin of gods and men. It's got the stories, yeah, the, the great of stories yeah. of, the, of the of the Surya and and the and the the Soma Vamsas. Uh, and it's got a wonderful section, a whole book on uh, the Leela of, of the pastimes of Krishna right. in Vrindavan. So it's, it, it serves as a really nice, uh, orderly introduction to Hindu traditions. What's interesting is because, like, you're right, you know, in terms of the Bhagavatam having very strong uh, precedents, especially with the Gaudiyas, even Madhvas have a very strong uh, affiliation for the Bhagavata. But I feel like within my tradition, which is the Sri Vaishnava tradition, the Vishnu Purana, you know, we call it the Purana Ratna, right? It's the, the gem of all the Puranas. And it's, it's actually like... Within you know Ramanuja and most and his sub subsequent followers, most of them have cited two Vishnu Purana in lieu of Bhagavata for many places. I I think it's also because the Vishnu Purana lends itself a little bit more to a Vishista Dvaitic interpretation than necessarily the Bhagavata does. Um, it's just, it's just uh, well, I thoughts. think that's right. I think that's right. Also, because the Vishnu Purana is somewhat earlier. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and I think the fact that. Uh, Shankaracharya cited or cites the the Vishnu Purana. I, I don't. I, uh, Shankaracharya predates the Bhagavata Purana, so of course he wouldn't he wouldn't cite that. Uh, but yes, it it, it has it, it certainly has had uh, significant status sure. in India. But really, I think probably since the the Bhagavata time of the Bhagavata, and particularly the time of the the rise of Gaudiya Vaishnava 
tradition, uh, traditions and the Chaitanya and the Goswamis who really who really venerate the Bhagavata. Vishnu Purana has been uh, underappreciated. And if yeah. I can bring it back, uh, if I can in any way uh, bring it back oh, and, and help it get the popularity I believe it deserves, uh, then I would be very happy. Did you did you ever uh, see that? I know in I think in the nineties, must have been the nineties, um, in Doordarshan, I think they did BR Chopra did the Vishnu Purana as a as a serial. Uh I for, I remember watching bits and pieces of it. It was poor production value, of course, but uh it was it was I remember the stories coming through there too. I don't know if you were gonna look I don't I uh... I was not aware of that, and of course, I I loved all of those those old Durdarshan, yeah. uh, Mahabharat and Ramayan. Uh, they were very formative for me too, and my kids watched them when they were growing up as well. <laughs> uh, but uh, but and just just on that Mukunda uh, as a way of bringing this text back into popular uh, consciousness. Yeah, uh, I'm also working on an audio book version of it because it's an oral text it should right, be presented right. and enjoyed orally and uh, uh we've engaged a a production company in uh, based in the uk mm -hmm. but they have studios in chennai and i'm now working with a very talented uh voice artist who is recording my my translation of uh, vishnu purana that'll be published as an audio book uh, for free distribution, free oh, download. Great. There's no, no. Uh, well, I, uh, I'm really looking forward to that. Well, I, I do appreciate like the fact that your your translation of the Shukran did come out in open source, where many of these books don't. So I, I do think it's uh, you know, if they, it, it, I could imagine if they had came out in a regular book, in many ways it would have been like a couple hundred bucks as as they are nowadays. You know, whether you publish through Rutledge or any of these other places. So I mean, that's a great yeah. uh, yeoman service you're doing for everybody. Yes, well, I'm very pleased to be able to do that. So the Australian National University Press is primarily an open source press. So everything everything we publish is available for free download at no cost. There's also a print on demand option. Sure. So you can, of course, order order hard copy as well. But uh, but just between just between me and you and your audience <laughs> of listeners. My, my previous publications with very respectable university presses have sold in the hundreds yeah. of copies. This Vishnu Purana has already been downloaded, last time I checked, 5,800 times. So it's it's just if, if you spend years and years writing something and you care about it and you yeah. want to get it out, Obviously, making it free makes all the difference. Well, and I it's think not, five and, of those are, are for me because I have it on five different uh, devices. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting for me because I, what I do sometimes is I pull out the 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 Sanskrit version and then uh, Wilson's and yours and I, I compare them just to see like you know how the the translations would differ and also you know to to comport sometimes with you know your particular passage how you interpret the uh, uh, the particular verse and, and how Wilson does. But before we get more into Vishupan, I'm really interested in finding out when you did your research on the oral tradition of the Bhagavata, uh, what was that like? And what were the salient features that really hit you when you, when you did that research in, in, in North India? Oh, I'm guessing North well, India, right? Uh, yes, it was in North India. It was around... Uh, my two main research sites were were around uh, Vrindavana itself, okay. and up uh, up in uh, Garwal, up near Uttarkashi, uh, in the in the foothills of the Himalayas. Right. Uh, so what was my my take home from that was these are these are enormously popular these. Sabdaha events, and my I think my uh, final reason or my explanation for their popularity is they enable a member of the faith community to be both traditional and modern at the same time. Can you so you can be a deep, uh, uh, you can be a deeply devout uh, devotee in this tradition 
And at the same time, you can be completely modern. You can go home to the comforts of your own home. You can talk to your friends on Sky, on 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 WhatsApp or whatever it is. So it somehow bridges the requirements of tradition. So this deep devotion, but enables you to live a contemporary, a comfortable contemporary life. You don't have to go and live in a cave in the Himalayas, or you don't have to isolate yourself. You can immerse yourself in this tradition. You can be a good you can be a good devotee in this tradition, but still be a part of modern society. So it's enormously attractive to, to people in contemporary society who are looking for some forms of uh, traditional fulfillment, I think. So in, in this oral uh, telling of the Bhagavata, is it, is it kind of like uh, Prabhachan where they would do like the, the Sanskrit and then commentary in, in the local uh, language, mm. whether it's Garbal or Hindi or whatnot and is it is it just purely oral or is it performed also uh, uh, there's the full spectrum uh mukunda so so yes traditionally it is a pravachan or pravachanam where uh, a, a vakta or a vyas they're called will 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 select stories or select verses yeah. and will either speak uh, will either speak or sing them, but there's also a strong musical tradition uh, where 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 the the vyas will sing and perform these four verses uh, with a musical backing. So particularly in Vrindavana, there there will be musicians sitting beside uh, or or behind the vyas as he delivers his uh, as he sings or delivers his um, uh, his pravachanam. So it's there's the full spectrum from rather dry uh, lecture style mm -hmm. delivery uh, to to uh, ecstatic singing, dancing, where 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 great waves of uh, of emotion are flowing over the audience, and everyone is is up on their feet dancing and and singing, really in 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 a close to ecstatic state. That's so beautiful. there's the full spectrum. I, I had my uh, my uncle who passed away years ago. Used to do in in Karnataka. I mean, well, he did in America, uh, which is he brought that the the format of Harikatha. I think it's very similar, right? They do in Karnataka. It's probably similar to that Pravachan style. Is you know you you would take, but he wouldn't go to like say Mahabharata. He'd go to Kumaravyasa and Mahabharata. You know the the Kannada version where he would he would say the you know from in the Kannada verse from the in that language in, in old Canada and then give like a modern Canada telling to music to to singing with all part of that mix right it was a so but each each story mm. was really it was like a story would like one performance would be just on Bhishma and talk, talk about Bhishma I imagine in this in this version of Prabhachan would it would it be going through the chapters each chapter you kind of flow through or is it is there a kind of like a theme for each one of these uh Largely, it's largely based on the, the structure of the Purana itself. They move, the, the Vyas, the speaker, the exponent, will move uh, systematically from the beginning to the end. But, uh, I, and of course, I can't say this, but they, they skip over the boring bits. <laughs> of, course. <laughs> of course, I can't. Of course, there are no boring bits in, in uh, Bhagavantam, <laughs> but there are bits that are more popular, let us say, more popular than others. Sure, sure. And, and so I think there's a real focus on the uh, on the stutis, uh -huh. on the uh, verses of praise, right, for right. example. And there are, right. there are obviously uh, stories that are more popular than others. And everybody loves the stories of of Krishna's lila, Krishna's pastime, right. Uh, right? In in Vraj. So I think those it 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 really rather builds up to the uh, to the days five and six tend to be the um, Tend to be the highlight when they're talking the stories of of Krishna. Was was do you know of anything similar that they do with Vishnu Purana or no? Or is this a very uh, yes uh, yes yes there is. Uh, I've just discovered there was a uh, Vishnu Purana Sapta. Uh, uh, I think in in Telugu, in fact. Oh so, yeah. So the Vyas spoke the words in in. Oh, he spoke the words of uh, the Vishnu Purana, but his pravachanam, his explanation was in Telugu. And I was fascinated to hear this. So there is still or is again a uh, Vishnu Purana pravachana tradition. Uh, there's a, there's, I saw an, an advertisement once for a, a, a Shiva Purana 
Pravachanam up at Uttarkashi. Well, that's good Shaiva country up there, right, so you right. might expect it. But right. uh, these are the only two only two examples of Puranas that I know also have uh, a, a spoken, an oral tradition. Do, do you, so based on your like research, do you think the Puranas on the whole and were were written with this in mind? Or were they even, I mean, were they, orig were they originally oral tales that became written or were they more written from the get-go? I mean, do we have any sense of any of this? I, I'm always a bit uh, skeptical about the distinction, okay. the dichotomy between written text and oral text. So, Mukunda, if I tell you a funny story right. and you go home and write it down, is it a written text or an oral text? No, and then if you tell it to someone, if you tell so so texts are both written and oral. They move uh, they move between genres. Uh, it's so it's impossible to say, I think. And I'm not sure it's the right question. Was this originally oral or right. was this originally written? We'll never know. And in some senses, it doesn't matter. So uh, the, the Vishnu Purana, well, let's take the Bhagavata Purana. Yes, it's a written text, but it's also an oral text. If right. I speak it to you, it becomes an oral text. Well, so uh, I'm, I'm not sure that I, I guess the I'm not sure. Oh, good. No, good. You got this dichotomy is, is really, uh, I'm not sure that the dichotomy between oral and written is really a useful uh, avenue of inquiry. Which is, I think that's a, a very, very nuanced way to have the discussion because I, I, well, I think one of the things like the Mahabharata, which we both love, this is like one of the core like arguments amongst a lot of scholars on this, right? You know, whether it was those oral texts that came from, you know, the fifth, fifth, sixth century BC that became written down during the Gupta period, or was it uh, like you know uh, Alf uh, Hillovital's theory, which is you know it's probably written the first few centuries and uh, the last few centuries of BC, and then it, it's a it's this modern debate that's been going on for quite a while. That's why I was just why because Indian texts are very much all about this, right? Like people are always fighting about the oratory, um, the, the if it's oral or literal, or it, it's it's this. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Mukunda. They spent so much time, and I'm very fond of it. I have great respect for these scholars, but they spend entire conferences arguing these same arguments that they've been arguing right. for decades. It's it, there's no resolution. You can't say nobody right. will ever say. No one will ever agree. Was it oral? Was it written? And, and I don't think it's the right question. I don't think it's the most interesting question that could be asked. Uh, so I've rather steered clear no, of, and, of these discussions. And, and I'm on the same page as you because half the time the way I think about this is like there's no way to prove this either way. These are uh, vast conjectures that tend to fall upon themselves. Like if you want to look for layers, you'll find layers, but then you justify it by finding layers that may or may not have been. Mm. It, it's a very like circular kind of reasoning. So I don't think it leads anywhere. So large part is I think this is where the critical addition project really comes into play right which is really what's the latest most complete version of a particular text the latest meaning like earliest in time that we have that can we can source and i think that's a very interesting project even though there's problems with it but i think it's an interesting yes. project it is an interesting project mukunda and so much indological uh effort has been invested in this and i'm a little bit heretical here because I also I I don't really subscribe to the idea of the critical edition, uh, right. which might seem ironic, having spent five years just working on right, uh, right. translating right. a critical edition. I don't believe uh, just just for the for the benefit of any of your listeners who may not or viewers <clears throat> who may not be aware of this. The idea of a critical edition really evolved out of biblical scholarship yeah. in higher, higher criticism in century. And the idea was that if you put every known manuscript of the gospel according to St. Mark out on your desk and compare them, you should be able to discover the original gospel according to St. Mark and therefore the true word of God. Right. Now, these this technique was d developed for Europe. It, well, I don't even. I mean, obviously, I don't totally believe that either. But uh, 
This approach to text was developed in Europe in European contexts. And at, just at that same time, uh, European scholars became aware of Sanskrit texts and they applied the same text, the same approach to text. The goal being to discover the original or the oldest version of text X. Yes. Now, my question is, why is the original or oldest version more important than any other text? There is this cult of the original text. Mm -hmm. We all must find the original text. I don't believe it. In my own view, is it is the Vulgate that is the more important text, the one that is most widespread the one that is most often read, the one that is found in the most manuscripts across the broadest geographical region. This is the, this is the version of the text that has had the most social influence, right. that has shaped society. So I'm much more interested in, in the way particular texts work. And I really have, uh, I, I can't see the value in finding the oldest possible text. Right. And in fact, one of my earlier projects was uh, looking at the Panchatantra, which I think everybody knows. Right. And what happened in the 1920s is they applied this methodology to all of the editions of the Panchatantra and their critical edition got smaller and smaller and smaller <laughs> and smaller until it ends up with, is it 20 or 23 stories? Right. And it's impoverished. Right. And sure, it might be the original, but it's nowhere near the most interesting. So so my work on the Panchatantra, I chose the biggest one I could find that had a hundred and something stories from memory. Uh, and this is the version that people know and, the, and people love. So I, I've never really subscribed to this idea that the oldest text should be what we what we strive to recover, and right. that should be the basis of our understanding. I well, don't buy it. Well, I think that's it's just a different perspective, right? Because those scholars are looking at what they can ascertain to be the truest version, meaning like the original kind of one with some level of truth, as opposed to the more vulgate versions, which are most impactful on on people right it, it just i think it's perspectival it's like what what are we looking for here or you know like, yes what are we looking for and i think yeah. that 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 question determines how you approach the text yes yes it, it does very much so and i've i've been shut down in conferences for asking for asking people why why do you regard this part of the text as a contamination right uh, so if 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 you take an old text and it's got more recent parts in it that don't belong, they say, oh, this has been contaminated by other texts. It's not contaminated. I think of them as improvements, actually, myself. And so I get, I, I've been shut down in conferences for saying such things. Well, it's interesting because I think I've also shifted my perspective over the years from being, well, this text is the oldest version of it, therefore it must be the right version, into being like, does it really matter? What is what is a text? What is a text or the authors trying to tell us in this narrative or mm. this story? Does it does it matter as much whether the one stanza wasn't in the quote unquote original, but it is there net later? Maybe there was something missing in the original that someone later on decided this actually fulfills it more. Right? This is it. The way I think about it, this is really just building what human beings do constantly. We're building on each other's knowledges yeah. over time, right? Knowledge doesn't remain yeah. static in one one place, one time. It shifts to audiences and authors, and you know, it's it's just, but it's a living, it's a living tradition. It, it, I mean, the concept of the fixed text at one point is kind of dead, right? And this this liveliness is important to have. Yes, yes, I I couldn't agree more. And I uh, on this topic, I often quote Wendy Doniger, who was a great hero of mine. Huh? She says that these that these Indian texts, particularly Puranic texts, are like uh, early Indian Wikipedias, where generations and generations of editors and authors have added material and expanded and expanded right. and expanded. Uh, and I think that's a very a very valid. Um, uh simile right no absolutely and you know on this on this part about you know text i think we were talking about a little bit earlier before we jumped on the on the call about the the, the kind of the, the the nature of you know yourself wendy um doniger and a whole host of uh, western Indologists or scholars of south asia and hinduism 
in conjunction with you know traditional scholars within you know the the the, the Hindu tradition, you know at some level I, I you know there is some level of of tension between the two, and yes. always, even though there is a lot of overlap because from from my understanding from many of the so scholars I've met um, from the West, many of them have went to India, especially the older generation. I think, um, you know, like mm -hmm. Wendy, uh, I mean, uh, Professor Doniger or Sheldon Pollock, or you know, the whole host of the the older generation did go to India for you know maybe months or years at a time to study under traditional uh, uh, gurus, acharyas, whatever you want to say, panditas, to learn a text or to learn Sanskrit or to learn whatever they were studying. I mean, I don't know, from my knowledge, a lot of the work being done today by modern, a lot of modern Indologists, they don't do that as much. Because I think they have the access to a lot of the studies they want here in the West. Um, and I find mm. that, so this is also my bias in some sense, and you can, you can respond to it or not. It just, I tend to hold the scholars of your generation at higher esteem than I do much of today's scholars. Because I find there's a, a more critical way of thinking about texts that are trying to be less reactive and more um, critical to trying to think about what these texts are trying to say, as opposed to what they want the text to say. Yeah. Oh, well, there's so many things we could talk about there, uh, Mukunda. Uh, I don't want to put you so, in any hot water. So whatever you feel comfortable yeah, with. Yeah, yeah. You, 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 no, you, I, I, I mainly, I've, I'm mainly associate and collaborate with scholars who are a generation younger, okay. I think. Uh, frankly, uh, so there are a lot of, uh, there's the full spectrum, isn't there? Sure. There are uh, older generation scholars uh, who, who have done, I think, the most wonderful work. I think I'm a huge fan of Bob Goldman. Yeah. I, uh, uh, Sheldon Pollock has really, I would regard him as a lineage guru, the fact that he was one of the first to apply contemporary critical theory to Sanskrit texts is enormously important to me. Wendy Doniger, with her breadth of uh, uh, her, her uh, mythological uh, perspective sure. on Sanskrit text, her gender perspectives on Sanskrit text, I think these scholars are actually way ahead of their time and they've really led the rest of us. Um, th there are many conservative scholars in... Uh, in, in older generations, there are conservative scholars in younger generations. Sure. But I think one of the things is this this idea of cross-fertilisation is important. Uh, the fact that very few people in South Asian studies, particularly in Indological or Sanskrit studies, have the time to read outside their discipline, sure. to find out what's happening sure. in, in European classics, what's happening in contemporary literary theory, how are people writing about uh, uh, about texts in in other traditions? Because mm -hmm. there's so much there's so much to be read, and there's so little time, and there's only a finite quantum. Uh, so I think in, in all generations, there are scholars doing extraordinary and interesting things. Right. No, and, and that's true. You know, like I, I have quite a bit of disagreement across the board with many, many scholars that I, I read. And there's things I agree with, and obviously things I disagree with. Um, and I, But I do find the one thing that, that kind of, I guess, puts me on edge is when, when, when we tend to read our modern selves into ancient texts. Right. Um, and we try yes. to bring our modern notions to the past as if the past yes. is reflecting us. And I think there's a problem yes. with that. And I, I, I tend to see a lot of times where like even some of some of Doniger's work, I, I have issues with that because I think the way she approaches it could be her reading of the world that she came from and lived in. And we all have biases. We, we bring all this to the table, yes. whatever we do. So it, yeah. it's, it's also about recognizing what those biases are. And seeing is this yes. what was actually being is going on, or is this something I'm reading into it? Yes, yeah, that's true. So uh, whenever we read anything, we're we're bringing our own background our, right. and our own prejudices, our own worldview to that, aren't we? But Mukunda, let me turn that around. Sure. For me, the joy in Sanskrit literature is is finding friends among Sanskrit authors. Yeah. So uh, I, I I deeply love Kali Dasa. Yeah. Whenever I yeah. see a, a mountain peak with a cloud wrapped around <laughs> it, I, I always think 
Ashlishtasanum. I always think of that that line in in uh, Dutam. Uh, whenever I see clouds, gray uh, gray and white clouds moving in procession across the sky, I think of that line in Urgveda about clouds remember, uh, resembling uh, a herd Cows, yeah. of spotted cows. Yeah. And I, I, it's this the fact that we can make these direct personal links across cultures and across millennia. Yeah. I think this is what I found find so enriching in Sanskrit literature. Every now and then I find a voice that speaks directly to me and enriches the way I view the world and I experience the world. And for no, me, that's that's where the no, joy in all of this comes. No, absolutely. And, and, and this is also, uh, I mean, what I would say a lot of my contention with traditional Panditas is, they're very read, well read in their tradition in their world, but they don't know much about the Western uh, ideas. Mm. Like, for example, the comparisons between philosophers of like, you know, Ramanujo, or you want to compare Spinoza or, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, who else, you know, uh, Aquinas, you know, they mm. many of them don't have that knowledge of Western thought. And I think mm. the importance, especially in today, what I what I really I'm hoping to see more of in in, in as we develop you know, a larger base of people that study these texts is engagement with ideas, right? Really interesting ideas mm. that people have engaged with throughout time and we're still dealing with today. You know, I I feel mm. that that is is very important. And something like the text even Vishnu Prana can give you insight into like, for example, like I think you're within your text, you talk about how. While the text itself on the whole tends to show a much more conservative vision of society and roles, it does have these moments where, like, for example, the the the, the prayer to Lakshmi by Indra or the prayer to mm. Lakshmi uh, by, by Maitreya and Parashara is a very interesting perspective on feminine, uh, femininity and masculinity mm. and how they kind of complement mm. each other in a in a unique mm. way. And and, and, and even though you might have a lot in the text are seem much more, I would say, I mean, maybe regressive is the word, maybe it's not, maybe a little more patriarchal, but there's parts where it, uh, it seems a little more liberal and a little more interested in, in something deeper. And and I want to have more discussions about those kind of things, because I think it's fascinating how these texts like, yes. like shift between these poles and they work. Yes, them. yeah. No. That's a really good point. I, the, uh, the the praises of uh, Lakshmi, and I think, in fact, the 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 role that the, the gopis play yeah. in the Krishna Leela is, in in some ways, also very uh, uh, gen, uh, it's very gender positive in that sense. Uh, I think there are strong female uh, role models there as well, but. Uh, uh, to just to step back from that, there's yeah. something there's something in these texts for everybody. Uh, they are enriching, and I think maybe the cold Western scholarly academic perspective can sometimes miss that. Yeah, uh, it's the beauty uh, and the profundity if you're um, functioning entirely on. Uh, uh, Dvanva compounds in early <laughs> Vedic texts or whatever your area of specialty is, don't don't forget uh, the the broader beauty. And I, I come back to one of your earlier points too, Mukunda. Yeah. And that is the generation who who could spend a year or two years in India as a part of their studies. That's actually much more difficult for for the younger generation of scholars. But still, it's so important right. to to experience the light. I think to experience the soil in which this culture grew. Right. Uh, I don't think you can really. It, it helps situate every everything written in Sanskrit is somehow situated in this Indian, uh, this Indian environment, this Indian ecology, right. and to experience the heat and the cold and the rain and the thunder, I, I, it somehow enables you to make sense of the texts right. uh, in ways that you can't others. So, so I really encourage all of my students to, to, if they can, to at least visit India so they can experience the, the environment in which these texts evolved. 
No, absolutely. Um, and, and so, you know, we, we touched upon a few other things. We haven't really got to the core of the issue, Purana, which I think is we can spend a little bit of time on this right now is, you know, when you when you got into this text and you started the translation process, what jumped out to you about this particular text that was, you know, different or unique or enticing that was as opposed to like other Puranas or other Itihasas that you've that you've engaged with? It's it's very nicely structured, actually, uh, Mukunda. So it really runs from the the creation of the universe through the um, uh, through the recreation and destruction of the universe. Uh, there's a section on on the world. There is a section, so a, a sort of a description of uh, mythical geography, right? Uh, including the stars and planets. There's uh, a section on human society. Uh, then there's the section on uh, Krishna, building up to the section on Krishna. And then there's a section on the dissolution of the final dissolution of the world in Moksha. So in that sense, it's it's very neat. Yeah. It really runs through through time, from the beginning of time through to the end of time uh, with, with uh, the, the creation society, uh, the world society and Krishna uh, nicely nested there. So uh, many of the other Puranas are not so well structured. Uh, they're not so well-rounded. Uh, they uh, so uh, again, I love I love Bhagavata Purana, but the structure is very complex, right? Uh, and it doesn't have this nice, uh, uh, almost chronological flow. So in that sense, it makes a very a very uh, it's it's a, it, as a package, it's easier to handle, I think, than many other Puranas. Now, Zushi Purana, it, um, it, ha it it's one of the few that I that I recall that has the all the Panchalakshanas, right? That, you know, like you just went through your yes, your, your yes. sarga, patisarga, vamsha, all that stuff, right? So, because um, mm -hmm. some other Puranas miss miss one or two of these, or they they do lip service to it really quickly and they move on. Um, yes. So it, it, it is there. I mean, obviously the the author of this particular Purana is unique insofar as all the other Puranas are by Vyasa at some level, and in in either redacting it or being. Uh, a, a primary compiler of these texts. Vishnupurana is unique insofar it's it's like previasa. It's you know it's his dad. Yeah, I, I'm not really. I don't really. Yeah, yes, but I don't really buy into this. I I, I say attributed to. No, no, rather yeah, than no. I, I'm just. I just mean within yeah. the narrative structure. I mean whether or not yes, who, who wrote yes. it, we have no sense. But like. According yeah. to the the text themselves and their narrative structure, it's you know yes. these these were all Vyasa. This one was particularly different by Parasha. Yes, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, that's true, uh, uh, and also it has a very simple narrative structure as well. Uh, it, it doesn't have a sort of a framing, much in the way of a framing narrative. Right. It's simply uh, 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 a discourse between. Parashara, the sage, and Maitreya, yeah. who is his his jela, his his shishya, his student. Uh, so it's a student, a, a discourse between uh, te between teacher and student. Uh, Maitreya asks questions: What is the nature of the universe? And uh, Parashara answers. So in that sense, it's a very uh, it's a very simple structure. Um, but uh, what else distinguishes it? I think. Uh, it's one of the earlier Puranas. It's uh, relatively coherent. The the fourth chapter uh, uh, is is actually most of it is in um, in shloka meter, mm -hmm. but there is a large chunk of genealogical material that's in prose that also appears in the Brahma Purana. So which text borrowed from which I I don't know, and I'm not that's not my primary con concern. Mm -hmm. But it, but it is interesting to talk about this intertextuality, this right. sharing of text, uh, sharing of of uh, uh, material among texts. Uh, but uh, but yes, I think it would be the narrative, the, the clarity of the chronological structure that sets it apart from uh, most other Puranic texts. And what also fascinates me about many of the Puranas is their their core story somehow revolves around the Mahabharata. It's all reference to some part of the Mahabharata war uh, and the repercussions of that war and and the falling out and so on. So it's a very interesting. Uh, I think 
narrative universe that all these texts are inhabiting. They, uh, that's exactly right. I really love the word uh, the term narrative universe. Uh, but it's interesting how they overlap and how they don't yeah. overlap. So, for example, in the Vishnu Purana, if, if I remember correctly, it says, oh, yes, and Krishna also spent some time with the Pandavas. And that's it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and in Mahabharata, it says, oh, and Krishna also had this interesting childhood. And yeah. that's it. That's it. That's so, it. Uh, <laughs> That's really, uh, in, in fact, that's why the Harivamsha exists. Right. Uh, it fills that very large lacuna yeah. in the uh, Mahabharata where the, where the whole of Krishna's life is simply not mentioned. Uh, so in that sense, Vishnu Purana and Mahabharata are, are really uh, complementary. One, one completely has the story of Krishna uh, in, 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 with the Pandavas, and one has the story of his, his Leela. So between the two, you get the full story. It, it's, it, it's very similar to, in some sense, of uh, even the Mahabharata, the reference to the Ramayana, right? They have that small little, uh, the Rama Upakanya in, uh, in, in, in Vanaparva, where Yudhishthira has told that story. It's, it's a very condensed version of the Ramayana. Oh, absolutely. Yes. So it, 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 yes. Uh, Ramayanam, Ramayanam yeah. is also in uh, in uh, Vishnu Purana in, yeah. in about, uh, it's like one or two chapters. Yeah. And interestingly <laughs> enough, it has, it has a happy ending. So right. it's, and, and in the end, they all went back to Ayodhya and lived happily ever after. And uh, so that really uh, fascinated me when, when uh, to compare that potted version of Ramayanam in Vishnu Purana with Valmiki's Ramayanam, for example, right. that has this rather tragic uh, denouement. So right. they're, they're quite, quite different. And it's also, I also find it interesting across all, most of the Puranas, always that story of Daksha always plays a big role in, in mm. these texts. Do you have a sense of why that is such a big moment within the these narrative frameworks no i don't no i don't uh, i don't know why daksha uh, in fact daksha has a rather complex role in uh the vishnu purana right and i don't really know enough about how he manifests in the other traditions to speak authoritatively on that right okay uh, but it's, so it's really Every story in Vishnu Purana is angled in such a way that it glorifies Vishnu. Obviously, that's why the text exists. Uh, so many of these narratives also exist in other traditions as well. Uh, and uh, one particular narrative can be shaped to, uh, to, to glorify Vishnu in this tradition, you can take exactly the same narrative and it can glorify Shiva in yeah. another tradition or it can uh, it can glorify Devi in right. another tradition. So the same narrative can adopt uh, or can be adapted to the discursive uh, uh, function of the text in which it's embedded or the tradition uh, that is that is using it. I mean, the one thing that did strike me about the Vishaparana compared to other ones is tends to be that even though it does glorify Vishnu, it doesn't do so at the exclusion of Shiva or uh, in many ways, like many of the other Vaishnavite texts do or Shaivite texts do to Vishnu. Um, it seems to be a little more trying to balance it out because it says in many places, like, you know, uh, the Atma of Shiva is Vishnu, Vishnu is Atma of Shiva, and they're one of the same in different in different places, right? It, it seems to be much more trying to balance that out. Uh, yes, it... Uh... I actually think uh, Shiva is is glorified in the Vishnu Purana, but only as a way of saying yes, Shiva is 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 sublime and glorious and wonderful, but is only a manifestation of Vishnu. Right. So the bigger you can make Shiva, you can make Vishnu even bigger still. <laughs> uh, that that's my sense. Always, it's always going to end up with Vishnu on top of the heap. Right. Right. Absolutely. But um, but. but Yes. No. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, no. Of course, there, there there are many mentions of Shiva uh, right throughout Vishnu Purana, but uh, usually the mentions are angled in such a way 
or inflected in such a way that they end up being uh, praise of Vishnu. Right, right. right. So now that you, you you finished this this project and you've just finished your Bhagavata, what what else is on the horizon for you? Uh, well, what I'm what I'm working on at the moment, uh, Mukunda. So I'm I'm very involved in creating this uh, audio. Uh, the audio book version of Vishnu Purana and investing quite a lot of time and getting that up and running. Uh, the next thing I would like to do is something I was unable to do with the ANU Press edition, and that is a bilingual edition of uh, the Vishnu Purana. So uh, uh, having the Sanskrit on this page and the English translation on this page, so you can put them together and and uh, uh, cross-reference them very easily. That had, in fact, been my original intention. Right. Uh, uh, was to create a bilingual edition, but for various reasons, we, we couldn't get access to the the Sanskrit text, uh, so we had to let that go. But that will be the next thing. Once this audio book is done, then I will be. Um, uh, devoting myself to getting this bilingual edition up and running. And are you going? Are you going to stick in the Vaishnavite universe, or are you moving on to a different uh, uh, a, a tradition here <laughs> afterwards? We'll have to. We'll just have to see what happens, uh, Mukunda. Um, we have the World Sanskrit Conference uh, happening in uh, January 2023. Okay. I'm the. Uh, I'm, I'm, for my sins, I am the. Uh, uh, <laughs> Chair of the local organizing committee. And of course, it was going to be in 2021 and then it was going to be in 2022, but we weren't budgeting on a pandemic. Right. Uh, so, uh, so there's a lot of work coming up uh, with that. Uh, we have a, uh, a panel on uh, uh, innovations in Sanskrit narrative, and that will produce a volume. We've got a volume on Sanskrit narrative coming out also with ANU Press. Uh, probably early next year. And is the conference going to be in Australia? The conference will be online, Mokonda, okay, which is and, and it's more disappointed than than I myself. We we're really hoping to bring uh, six or eight hundred Sanskrit scholars to to Canberra. It's a beautiful city. I really sure. wanted to show it off to my friends and colleagues. But the way world travel, we, we had to make this decision in April right. this year, uh, and and it was just not, we couldn't guarantee that it would be safe, that Australia would be open, that it would be accessible. Right, right. So uh, we've, we made the very difficult and disappointing decision to hold it online. But having made that decision, we are firmly committed to making it uh, as excellent as we possibly can. So there'll be lots of opportunities for uh, interaction and networking. Uh, and so we're looking forward to that in January 2023. Is it open to lay people to come and watch and listen and partake, or is it only scholars? Uh, no, no, it's very much open to anyone. Uh, there, There is a fee. There is a conference fee. Sure. But it's fairly modest uh, compared to most conferences. So, of course, anyone can join. And we're very easy to find if you just uh, Google World Sanskrit Conference 2023 you'll go straight to our website where you can register online. Awesome. Um, and can you tell us, so can you tell us about your other great uh, project that you're working on in, in in Australian National University, which is the the Sanskrit project where you're doing quite a bit of work with, you know, uh, people that want to learn Sanskrit online and want to engage. Uh, what exactly are you guys doing here? Uh, well, we've, uh, we've really pioneered uh, remote learning for Sanskrit. So when I started teaching almost 20 years ago, right. we were the very early adopt, adoptee, adopters of uh, teaching by video conferencing. Okay. Uh, very early adopters of uh, teaching online. And uh, when my poor colleagues started tearing their hair out at the beginning of the, the pandemic, how am I going to teach online? It was causing enormous anguish. Right. Uh, it's just business as usual for us. So uh, I've always had students all over the world uh, joining our Sanskrit program at the ANU uh, online. So it uh, really was not uh, a big drama for us. So the way we the way we manage our online course is we have uh, each each uh, class is taught twice. Uh, so there's an early session. 
which is good for, for people in uh, uh, Australia and anywhere uh, to the east of here. So okay. North and South Central American students uh, join that early morning session. And I also run an evening session, which is good for students west of here. Right. So students in India, uh, students in Europe uh, would come to our evening class. So how how big are your, like, if you do, I'm guessing you do like semester system where you have uh, one. That's right. Mm -hmm. So how big do you get your enrollment? Uh, I'd normally hope to have about 25 students in first year. And we would have usually uh, uh, 12 or 14 in second year and uh, six or eight in third year. Right. And maybe four or five in fourth year. And at the end of this fourth year, do they, do they get a degree in uh, a bachelor's or a master's or uh, how does that work? Uh, most of our students would be doing uh, something like a diploma of language or they're slotting this into an Asian studies degree. Okay. Uh, in fact, many of our students would already have a PhD in something else anyway, and right. they're studying this for love. Most of our students would be mature age students uh, who are not necessarily part of a um, uh, an undergraduate program. Oh, excellent. Uh, but let me let me just uh, one more thing about our program that I sure. think makes it pretty unique. And that is I teach Sanskrit as a living tradition. So uh, I teach spoken Sanskrit. There's a strong emphasis on singing because, in fact, most of our texts uh, uh, were really written to be sung anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, um, uh, with the kavya, with the with the the natya, with the dramas, of course, uh, with those beautiful verses, we sing all of these. So uh, I say I teach Sanskrit as a living tradition because uh, many of our students are yoga teachers or yoga practitioners or coming from a Hindu or a Buddhist tradition, and they're using Sanskrit every day. So it's not for them. It's not a, a, it's not a dead classical textual language. It's something very much part of their life. Sure. And uh, I'm really working to foster and encourage that uh, active engagement with the production of Sanskrit, not just the reception of text. So when you when you say you sing it, are you putting it to like Hindustani Carnatic kind of rag kind of situation? Or are you trying to do it much more um, like a shloka chanting kind of way? It, it's it's uh, with the um, so. Uh, there is shloka chanting, but then when we're reading Kalidasa, for example, it's much more musical. We really sing that. Can it's you give not an just, example more if, than if, just if you're comfortable? Yeah. Can you give an example? Yes, sure. Kaschit kanta viraha guruna svadikarat pramataha shapenastang gamita mahima varsha bhogena bhartuhu that's very nice so that's uh yeah so that's that i i cause all my students australians are not very good at singing by and large but <laughs> well that's not true you, do, you guys uh, have kylie uh, Minog or a few a few other people like that, that are good. <laughs> yeah, also have acdc <laughs> and, and hugh jackman who, who's good at that also <laughs> yeah. no no that's fantastic i love it i love that you're teaching it in in an oral sense instead of just learning how to read and write and, and being um, because many people don't know how to pronounce the words, and I love that you're you're oh, you're teaching, you know, teaching how to pronounce it and even intonations. Yeah. That's very important. Yeah, well, yeah, very important. So I'm I'm very strict about pronunciation. Uh, mm. Yeah, well, you have to be. Tested, if, if, right? the, <laughs> if the if the pronunciation is not correct, the gods will not be happy. Right. If, if the you... gods are not happy, they will not provide rain. If there's no <laughs> rain, we all know how terrible that is. Well, that's climate change. Maybe maybe that's because people aren't uh, saying Sanskrit properly right now. <laughs> well, 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 Dr. Taylor, I really appreciate your time. Is there anything else that you think that we we can touch upon or anything else you want to tell uh, tell our uh, listeners or viewers? It's it's such a nice offer, Mukunda. I'm going to have to leave it there because my battery is going to die. But okay. it was a real pleasure talking to you too. And I hope we can catch up again before too long.
Absolutely, Dr. Taylor. I really appreciate it. Have a great rest of your day, and uh, we'll talk soon. Yamuna tire gayati vanamali gayati vanamali madurum gayati vanamali.